Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. In 1919, the 78-year-old Holmes turned aside the earnest pleas of his wife and his fellow justices to protest the jailing of a radical for his beliefs. In his dissenting opinion in Abrams v. U.S., Holmes explained, quote, When men have realized that time has upset many fighting faiths, they may come to believe, even more than they believe the very foundations of their own conduct, that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas, that the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, and that truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out. In succeeding years, civil libertarians fought to establish a free trade in ideas. Slowly, battle by battle, they fundamentally changed the relationship between the American people and their government. The censorial power is in the people over the government and not in the government over the people, James Madison said during a debate in the House of Representatives in 1794. This is the story of our triumph over government censors. But as any librarian will tell you, the battle will never be won. The fight continues. Chapter 1. Ground Zero. On the evening of November 7, 1919, Mitchell Lavrovsky was teaching a class in algebra to a room full of Russian immigrants at the Russian People's House, a building just off Union Square in New York City. The 50-year-old Lavrovsky was also Russian. He had been a teacher and the principal of the Iglitsky High School in Odessa before immigrating to the United States, and now lived quietly with his wife and two children in the Bronx. Lavrovsky had applied for American citizenship, but that didn't matter to the men who entered his classroom with their guns drawn around 8 p.m. They identified themselves as agents of the Department of Justice and ordered everyone to stand. One of them advanced on Lavrovsky and instructed him to remove his eyeglasses. He struck Lavrovsky in the head. Two more agents joined the assault, beating the teacher until he could not stand, and then throwing him down the stairwell. Below, men hit him with pieces of wood that they had torn out of the banister. Lavrovsky soon had company on the stairs. There were several hundred people in the Russian people's house that night, most of them students. After they were searched and relieved of any money they might be carrying, the students were ordered out of their classrooms and into a gauntlet of men who struck some of them on the head and pushed them down the stairs toward the waiting police wagons. Students were grabbed as they approached the school, and dragged inside. Some were beaten in the street. Meanwhile, with the help of New York City police detectives, the Justice Department men began to tear the place apart, breaking furniture, destroying typewriters, and overturning desks and bookshelves until the floor was covered in a sea of paper. When they judged that there was nothing useful left, they carted off 200 prisoners to the Department of Justice's offices in a building across from City Hall. The Russians were questioned about their connection to the Union of Russian Workers, which rented a room in the Russian house. The agents discovered that only 39 were members of the group and released the rest. Mitchell Lavrowski was sent home at midnight with a fractured head, shoulder, and foot. The roundup of Russians continued through the night and into the next day. The police burst into apartments and dragged people from their beds. Sometimes they had arrest warrants, but usually they simply arrested everyone they found. In the end, the Department of Justice had grabbed more than 1,000 people in 11 cities. 
Approximately 75% of those arrested were guilty of nothing more than being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and many were quickly released. Others were not so lucky. Nearly 100 men were locked up in Hartford, Connecticut for almost five months. Many of them were denied access to a lawyer or even knowledge of the charges against them. Probably half were Russian workers, whose only crime was that they could not speak English. When a lawyer finally succeeded in getting inside the jail, ten of the men were released with no bail. America cheered the November raids. World War I had ended a year earlier, and the country was enduring a wrenching conversion to peace. Unemployment surged as returning veterans sought to reclaim their old jobs. Many of them had been eliminated as the economy was retooled for war production, and now the war workers, too, were out of work. In the transition between war and peace, there were too few consumer goods. No new housing had been built in over 18 months. As a result, at the moment...